Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. Increment 27. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, but also a special psalm, Psalm 45. And we're going to take a little bit of a deeper look at the psalm than we usually do, going a little bit past the reference that's quoted in Hebrews. So, Father, now we pray that you'll open the eyes of our heart to see wonderful things in your law, in your word, which is a perfect law of freedom. And by seeing wonderful things, we mean that the sum total of those things is Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity. We pray for all the hearers of this word today that this word will be a great blessing and a great motivation and may it impart much momentum to us all so that we may walk worthily of the Lord, that we may have a life of fruitfulness in grace and a life that's pleasing to you, Father, through Jesus our Lord and by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, I've equated the Son's love for righteousness and hatred of lawlessness from Hebrews 1.9 as two elements of what we call his meritorious obedience. The obedience of the Son in the days of his flesh is an enormously significant theme in Hebrews, just as it is in Romans and throughout the New Testament. I refer you back to a couple of messages that we did foreshadowing this series on October 6th and October 13th of 2019 in our series called The Doctrine of the Mystery. This present series was foreshadowed there with two introductory messages on the meritorious obedience of Christ. Now, because the Son loved righteousness and hated lawlessness or rejected lawlessness, God, who addresses the Son as God, anointed him with the celebratory anointing oil. The oil of gladness is the oil that accompanied a coronation, an enthronement of the Son as Messiah King. The Son's love of righteousness culminated in a single act of righteousness called enos dikaiosune or dikaiomatos, dikaiomatos, as it is in Romans 5.18. Enos dikaiomatos, one act of righteousness, a single act of righteousness, in Romans 5.18, which turned out to be universally salvific, universally saving in its effects. We call this the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. Now, by that I mean that the single act of righteousness accomplished by one Jesus Christ, 
resulted in justification and everlasting life for all human beings. This one act of righteousness is equated with the obedience of the one <clears throat> representative man. We call him the Sir, S-I-R, a single, inclusive representative for all of mankind. So this one act of righteousness is also known as the obedience of the one representative man by whom many human beings, once condemned, were made righteous, Romans 5.19. And so this love of righteousness produced one act of righteousness over and against which there is lawlessness, which is the act of disobedience by another single inclusive representative of mankind, the first Adam. This is found in Romans 5.18 and 19, very significant verses as we learned in Romans the epistle, reading Romans with the light on. This love of righteousness is counterbalanced by the son's hatred or rejection of lawlessness. Lawlessness is precisely the, uh, the disobedience which was accomplished by the first Adam, the first single inclusive representative of the human race whose disobedience led to the condemnation of all the human race whom he embraced in himself or comprised in himself. And so the hatred of lawlessness, anomia, was Jesus' rejection of disobedience and putting off of the disobedience of Adam. His love of righteousness was the single act of righteousness, which was his obedience to the extent of death, even by the death of the cross. Now, the PT is obviously familiar with the kind of argument that Paul poses in Romans 5, 12 to 19, which compares and contrasts two single inclusive representatives or sirs. He uses a similar argument in Hebrews 7. The PT does. The author of Hebrews uses a similar, sometimes called seminal argument, in Hebrews 7, when he makes a surprising but very effective exegetical move of saying that Levi of the priesthood order, the old priesthood order, that Levi was present in the loins of Abraham when Abraham tithed the spoils of war to Melchizedek. And when Melchizedek in turn blessed Abraham, showing that not only was Melchizedek greater than Abraham, but also showing that the priesthood that Melchizedek represented, for he was a king and a priest, was greater than the priesthood represented in Levi, who was yet to proceed from the line of Abraham when this incident occurred. Genesis fourteen seventeen to 20. We'll be reading about that in Hebrews 7, Lord willing, down the road or down the line. That the son's love of righteousness and hatred of lawlessness is rightly interpreted as his meritorious obedience, Hebrews 1, 9, compared to 
Romans 5.19 and Philippians 2.8. Again, that the son's love of righteousness and hatred of lawlessness is rightly interpreted as his meritorious obedience to the father's universally salvific and redemptive will is further case hardened. That is the case is further case hardened by the fact that he is anointed with the oil that is celebratory of his coronation precisely because he is anointed with this oil instead of his companions or rather than his angelic companions because he loved righteousness, dikasune, and hated lawlessness, anomia. Putting aside self-preservation then, that's rooted in self-interest, Jesus came to do God's will. And he did it by the sacrifice of himself, not the preservation of himself. As Romans 15.3 says, the anointed one did not please himself. Psalm 45.7, which is the Septuagint version, 44.8, the Greek version of 44.8, fits elegantly, therefore, within the bevy of verses in Hebrews and elsewhere in which Jesus the Christ, the anointed, is exalted because of his voluntary humiliation and meritorious obedience in the days of his flesh. In Hebrews, we have verses like 2.9, which reads, crowned with glory and splendor, because of the suffering of death. Notice that. Crowned with glory and splendor. Because of the suffering of death. The suffering of a death that was the culmination of his obedience. His obedience to the universally saving will of God the Father. In Hebrews 12.2, Jesus, having endured the cross, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Philippians 2.8, and there is a very strong connection of Philippians 2.5 through 11 in all of Hebrews. And uh, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, Jesus' endurance of the cross called death by crucifixion, exclamation point, is explicitly said to be the result of the extent of his obedience, the extreme of his obedience, the extremity of it. Moreover, his exaltation, by which he inherited the name above all names, 2, 9, and 10, is declared to be the result of this obedience. That's why it says, therefore, God highly exalted him. In Hebrew, in Philippians 2.9, following 2.8. Follow that progression. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says that though he was the eternal divine son, though he was son, a reference back to 1.2 in 5.8, though he was, meaning the eternal divine son, he, quote, learned obedience 
through the things he suffered. Find a connection in 5.8 with 2.10 of Hebrews. Things that he suffered on the way to becoming, quote, the source of everlasting salvation to all who obey him. 5.9. All of this agrees with Hebrews 1.3, where the Son is declared to have sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after making purification for sins. Now, we've been observing that the PT has selected quotations from royal psalms, psalms having to do with king and kingship. Psalm 2, he cites in Hebrews 1.5, or quotes. Psalm 97, which is the Septuagint Psalm 96, a royal psalm, quoted in Hebrews 1.6. Psalm 110, a royal psalm, in 113. These are notable examples. Now, the extended quotation of Psalm 45, 6, and 7, which is the Septuagint 44, 7, and 8, in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, is also from a royal psalm. More specifically, it's called a royal wedding psalm. For these reasons, we're justified in calling the present series within Hebrews 2020 the Corona series. And this, I think, is the 16th increment of that, in which we see Jesus crowned with incomparable glory and splendor as the royal Messiah. Psalm 45, Septuagint 44, is introduced as a love song. If you read the very first opening lines, it's introduced as a love song or an ode, O-D-E, over the beloved. Ode huper ton agapetu. An ode over the beloved. In fact, the introduction of Psalm 45, which is 44 in the Septuagint, says this, regarding completion. Isn't that an interesting way to open the psalm? Regarding completion over those that will be changed. It then says, over those that will be changed. Pertaining to the sons of Korah, K-O-R-E, alternate spelling K-O-R-A-H. We'll see what that means in a moment. And then it says, regarding understanding, an ode over the beloved. So note those phrases, they're curious. Regarding completion, over those that will be changed, pertaining to the sons of Korah, or in some cases, this is translated by the sons of Korah, this psalm was written, and regarding understanding or insight, an ode or a song sung over the beloved. Now, where there's an allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, or a quotation of Scripture in the New Testament, it's usually profitable to consider the wider context of that quotation. 
it would be profitable, and we don't have time to do that. It would take years, literally, to do that all through the New Testament. But to fan out from the quotation that is made, look before and after in its context. Look at the whole psalm, or sometimes look at the whole group of psalms. This happens to be a mass kill psalm, which we'll explain. And there are about 13 of those, 11 of whom were by the sons of Korah. So wherever there's an allusion or quotation, whether to Psalms or any other Old Testament passage, it's profitable to consider the wider context of that quotation. Now, Psalm 45, LXX 44, in its totality, proves to be very instructive and helpful for discerning the intention of the PT in this homily that we call Hebrews. We can be sure that though the writer quotes only parts of the Psalms, that the whole Psalm from which he extracts the quotation is not too far from his mind. Just taking the introductory lines of the first verse in Psalm 44, which is 45 in your English Bibles, we see prominent themes or motifs that are dealt with in Hebrews. Certainly, completion is one. It's alternative meaning perfection. Certainly then, completion is one of those themes. For much of the exposition element of Hebrews is about the son's perfection or his completion through suffering. And our whole question about this is the essence of what we're studying. Why was, what does it mean that he was perfected or completed and why through suffering? While much of the exhortation, the impartation of incentive and the personal appeals and urgent appeals to the readers, much of that is about the completion or the perfection of the hearers of this homily. What does it mean that we are changed, that we become complete, that we become perfect? And we know that that perfection is related to God's grace and to a perfect or complete solidarity with Jesus. This is something God produces in us. Both the son and those whom he calls his siblings undergo change. That's very important because in the first line in the Septuagint, regarding completion over those that will be changed pertaining to the sons of Korah or by the sons of Korah regarding understanding or an insight and owed over the beloved. Now that the entirety of the exposition of Hebrews is instruction leading to the understanding of the transcendent nobility of the Son, is also apparent. What is less apparent is, at least to casual observers, is that Hebrews, like Psalm 45, is in fact an ode over the Beloved. Now, I say that this is not apparent to the casual observer because the only places in Hebrews where agapao, the verb for love, is found is here in one nine where we're 
currently studying, in a quotation of the Septuagint of Psalm 44.8. And the only other time the verb is used is in a quotation of Proverbs 3.11 and 12 in Hebrews 12.6. The noun love, agape, only appears twice in 6.10 of Hebrews and 10.24. And in both cases, it's not thematic or a major theme. In Hebrews 1.9, the verb is used in the context of loving righteousness. And in Hebrews 12.6, in the context of the Lord disciplining the one whom he loves. Hongar agapa kurios. Hongar agapa kurios, the one whom the Lord loves. He disciplines. The noun agape is used in Hebrews 10 in a recollection of the reader's love for God that was demonstrated by their love that they showed for his name by serving the saints. It would be difficult to build an ode over the beloved, a song dedicated to the beloved, from these references, scant references to love. And yet, parts of Hebrews, for example, 1, 1 to 4, can truly be seen as an ode or as a song sung over the beloved. That means over the Son, over Jesus, and over all those later on who are joined to him as his siblings and in union with him. They too are beloved. Hebrews in toto, that is the whole of Hebrews, is about completion. It's a thematic aspect of Hebrews. As we see in the Septuagint of Psalm 44, 1a, it's about completion. It is about the completion of God's son in the sense that he comes into perfect solidarity with a redeemed humanity. And it's a completion of humanity as humanity comes into perfect solidarity with Jesus, their redeemer. Completion, otherwise known as perfection. By another metaphor, this completion is that of the king and his bride. That's another metaphor brought up in the royal wedding psalm of Psalm 45, LXX 44. In the Song of Songs by Solomon, the Song of Songs, in, in Song of Songs or SOS 4.9, the shepherd says, you have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. In Proverbs 7, 4, it says, Say to wisdom, Sophia, you are my sister, Adelphane, sister. Here, in Proverbs 7, 4, as well as Song of Solomon 4, 9, sister is not referring to one's natural sibling. It is a term of endearment, like that used of Jesus, who is not ashamed to call those whom he redeems, his siblings, his brothers, and his sisters. At the same time, his siblings, his brothers and sisters, collectively, are his bride. 
So my sister, my bride, does not signify an incestuous relationship. Rather, it describes the dual metaphor, a double metaphor of the Lord's solidarity with his redeemed siblings, which in another sense is his union with his bride. Now, when we take these two things into consideration, Hebrews, at least in part, fits the genre of a song. And even in its own way, Hebrews is a song over the beloved. As Hebrews 1.6 says, to the praise of God's glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. Now, beside this, there is the second half of LXX Psalm 44.1, in which the psalm composer writes this, and this should be known to every pastor teacher who teaches the word of God or evangelist or communicator of the word or a theologian even who teaches. My heart erupted, it says literally, with a goodly theme. It is I that address my works to the king. My tongue is the pen of a swift scribe. I think we can say that the heart of the pastor teacher, who both, and the pastor theologian, the PT, who both spoke as a homily and wrote as an epistle, Hebrews, we can say that his heart indeed erupted or broke out with a beneficial benevolent and beneficent theme, a theme that would be very helpful to his audience, and that he used both his tongue as a preacher and his pen as a writer in crafting this inspired work. Something else that we can say about Psalm 45, LXX 44, that it is along with 12 other psalms Psalm 32, 42, 44, 52, 53, 54, 55, 74, 78, 88, 89, and 142. A maskil psalm. M-A-S-C-H-I-L. Meaning that it is intended to instruct. Maskil, or some pronounce it masil, means to instruct, comes from a word meaning to instruct, to impart understanding, and to promote piety and wisdom. Maskils are often aimed at bringing reckless persons to wisdom and spiritual understanding, leading to a higher integration of human living that is worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, and fruitful. I think of Colossians 1, 9 to 10 when I think of those things. Colossians 3.16 also says that all wisdom, kind of all the wisdom we need, results from letting the word of Christ reside in us copiously and circulate in our hearts freely. A maskil then is just what the doctor ordered. For a people prone to drift away, 
from the truth of so great a salvation of which God's son is the source and the champion. This psalm is said to be by the sons of Korah and K-O-R-E or K-O-R-A-H. It is instructive to us, and I'm going to bring this out now, that Korah was one of the infamous rebels, along with Dathan and Abiram, who conspired against Moses and Aaron. Numbers 16 tells the story, as well as 26, 9 through 11. Korah was a minister of the sanctuary, but he lusted for more. He wanted the priesthood as well. Now, the Fawcett Bible Dictionary, F-A-U-S-S-E-T, excuse my pronunciation, but that dictionary is helpful in this score, and I'm quoting a section of its definition or its little writing upon this, the sons of Korah and of Korah. It says, despising dominion and speaking evil of dignities is the sin of Korah, and he perished by gainsaying, that is, speaking against Moses, a warning to all self-sufficient despisers of authority. The effect of this terrible warning on the survivors of Korah was that the family attained high distinction subsequently. In other words, Korah's great failure and discipline resulted in the family being elevated through humility so that they attained high distinction subsequently. For example, Samuel, the great prophet who anointed David, was a Korhite or a son of Korah in that sense. First, Chronic- First Chronicles 6.22-28. Korhites, K-O-R-H-I-T-E-S, under David, had the chief place keeping the tabernacle doors, 1 Chronicles 6, 32 to 37. And in the psalmody, or the composure of psalms, the composition of psalms, 1 Corinthians, make that 1 Chronicles 9, 19 and 9, 33. 11 psalms, writes Fawcett, are inscribed with their name as the authors. Psalms 42, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 84, 85, 87, and 88. Their subject and tone, he closes with this sentence, their subject and tone are pleasant and cheerful, free from anything sad or harsh, even more sublime and vehement than David's psalms, and glowing with spirituality and unction. Now, Hebrews, in many ways, comes across as a masculine in its impartation of understanding and insight through exposition and in its impartation of incentive and momentum through exhortation. The PT's instruction is geared to bring people in danger of drifting to a deeper understanding of the Son of God and the so great salvation which they were in danger of neglecting. Hebrews 2, 3, maskil, M-A-S-C-H-I-L, is kind of close to what we might call the genre of Hebrews. 
It's a close identification of the genre of Hebrews. Hebrews comes across as a masculine. It is profitable for us to understand that the PT selected a canonical psalm which was connected to Korah, who offers the perfect illustration of the consequences for someone who despised the law of Moses, Hebrews 10.28. So how better to draw the attention to the warning of the consequences that might ensue for those who despise what God said in his son? We are certainly not talking about an eternal hell, but we are certainly talking about historical catastrophe and personal consequences. So, in any case, the selection of Psalm 45, 6 to 7, Septuagint 44, 7 to 8, fits perfectly in a florilegium or a collection of references, a series of references, also known as a catena, which depict the transcendent dignity of the Son over angels. Consequently, also of the superiority of the new covenant, which God spoke in his son over the covenant spoken by angels and mediated by Moses. On top of all of this, in Psalm 45, 2, which is LXX 44, 2, the king is said to be blessed by God throughout the age, or through the age. This is a very important phrase. Ice, E-I-S, tone, T-O-N, aona, A-I-O-N-A, long O-N-A. So, again, in 44.2, the king is said to be blessed by God through the age. Ace, or ice, ton, Aona. This correlates elegantly with Psalm 110 and verse 4, in which we hear God say to his enthroned son, the king, the Messiah king, quote, you are blessed through the age. Same phrase identically. Ice, ton, Aona. After the order of Melchizedek. This Psalm 110.4 and this word of God blessing the king forever by making him a priest is a word which we hear echoed about Jesus in Hebrews 5.6, and 7.21. So this in Psalm 45 subtly serves to add the priesthood to the royalty of Jesus. Psalm 45 also offers the vision of the king as a mighty warrior. Psalm 45.3, LXX 44.4. As Hebrews calls him, the champion who secured our salvation. So the warrior finds a connection. The warrior in Psalm 45.3, Septuagint 44.4, finds a connection with Jesus the champion who secured our salvation, Hebrews 2.10, 5.9, 9.12, 12.1, 12.2, 12, 
12.2, and who is also the destroyer of the devil. In Hebrews 2.14, who had enslaved all human beings in the fear of death. Also in Psalm 45 is an urgent exhortation to a daughter, a daughter, to be attentive and to forget her father's house. Psalm 45.10, LXX 44.11. This is in the same spirit as the exhortation to be attentive in Hebrews. Be all the more attentive in 2.1. And the urgent appeal for the readers to go to Christ outside the camp, along with the PT in 13.13 of Hebrews. And the urgent appeal for them to comport themselves as the house of Christ or the household of Christ as his human companions. 3.6 and 3.14 of Hebrews. The psalm closes with the declaration, quote, they will confess ex homo They will confess the king's name in all generations. Reminds me of Ephesians 3.21. And therefore, this Psalm 45.17, LXX 44.18, can be compared with Hebrews 1.4 and 2.9, as well as Philippians 2.9 to 11. The confession, marturion, and its continued acknowledgement is a very important theme in Hebrews, both in the exhortation part and the exposition part. Hebrews 3.1, 4.14, and 10.23. The whole idea is that those drifters or those who are tending to drift in the riptide of the cosmos, away from a bold confession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God, is being addressed here. Their bold confession ought to be maintained. And so for these reasons and for others that we don't have time to consider today, we can see why Psalm 45, LXX 44, was chosen to offer a significant testimony of the Son and his superiority over the angels. So far then, as we close, the Florilegium reads this way, from Hebrews 1, 5 through 9. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when he leads his firstborn into the world, he says, worship him, all you angels, all God's angels. And with regard to the angels, he says, he who makes his angels winds and his ministers a fiery flame. But to the sun, he says, your throne, God, is for the ages of the age. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of equity. You loved righteousness and rejected lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you instead of your companions, the angels. 
Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again to grow one increment to the next in the knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ, to grow one increment to another in his grace and go on to perfection or more and more solidarity and communion with your son and transformation and change into his likeness. We thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen.